Uh, this week on Boardroom Talk, we're, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Anna Manns, who's the Chief Financial Officer of uh, Johnson Matthey, which has got to be one of the oldest uh, companies uh, trading on the FTSE at the moment, perhaps the oldest. Uh, it gives you some idea when when the company came into being, uh, King George III was on the throne, the, the New York Stock Exchange had just been founded, and the last major Luddite attack occurred, apparently against uh, lace-making machines in Loughborough, of all places. As that last point demonstrates, there's, there's no holding back progress. Uh, but as we all know, for companies, uh, that often comes at a cost. And it represents something of a, a dilemma for shareholders as well. Uh, companies like Johnson Matthey that are front-loaded in terms of their capital expenditure. You know, we're often trying to answer the question ourselves, when does the draw on capital give way to increased earnings? Uh, but there are obviously other issues to tax Anna and her management colleagues. Okay, Anna, thanks very much for coming on Boardroom Talk today. As I mentioned, Johnson Matthey has been around for about 200-odd years in one form or another. And uh, how has it managed this in a rapidly evolving industrial landscape? I know it, it's, it's in a state of flux at the moment, I would say. I think Johnson Matthey has um, a huge core competitive advantage around our world-class science. And that is right at the core of what we do. We have specialties and specialisms in a a small number of areas um, that allow us to use that capability to solve problems for our customers. And as the world evolves around us, sometimes those customer problems change uh, due to legislation or due to just movements in, in what consumers want and need. What we continuously do is use our science to evolve the solution such that we can meet our customers' needs. Uh, So that's how we've managed the last 200 years, and that's what has seen us navigate um, a changing environment which will continue to change and a shape of business that will continue to change. Yes, it it must present uh, special challenges uh, for the board as well. I remember when we spoke at the the time of the full year results as well, I said it must be quite difficult actually finding suitable candidates for management and the board. I mean, you yourself, I think, have a background in in chemistry uh, prior to uh, you learning, uh, well, prior to you coming into the financial side of the business. Talking about change uh, at at the moment, there's a a looming transition going on in the UK and Europe and elsewhere towards uh, hybrid and uh, electric motoring. Given that Johnson Matthey, I believe, is one of the top two or three uh, producers of uh, emission control technologies in the automotive uh, sector. Has any of this impacted the business? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically here about the diesel scandal. I mean, that must have presented uh, a short-term hurdle for the, for the group. Yeah, so if we just step back a bit, Johnson Matthey has four sectors. And you're right, the biggest sector is our clean air sector, which... Um, delivers emissions control technology for cars. We also have an efficient natural resources sector, which is around the catalysis of of multiple different processes. Um, We have a health sector, which um, is around the, the development and manufacture of the active pharmaceutical ingredients that are ingredient the, the ingredient that does the magic in drugs. Yep. And we also have our new market sector, which is very much focused around, at the moment, battery materials and the opportunities that um, some of these shifts bring the group. Collectively, we feel that we're 
are in a very strong place and we can deliver mid to high single digit EPS CAGR over the medium term. And we target a 20% on return on invested capital and a progressive dividend. So how do we feel confident about all of that in the context of this evolving landscape, which I think goes to the heart of your question? So if we talk about a little bit about that clean air business, which is, is the business that does make emissions control uh, technologies for cars, I mean, the first thing to say is it is only a good thing for the world that we're seeing an increasing focus on emissions control. Particularly in urban um, environments. Absolutely. And, and JM, you know, we're all about cleaner, healthier uh, air quality. And, that, and what that means for us is legislation which is being enacted, and that requires new products to deliver against that legislation, which is also good for us because that plays to our ability to keep evolving our product. Hybrid cars actually are neutral to positive for us because a hybrid car has a combustion engine uh, as well as a battery. And actually, because that engine goes on and off, it goes goes from very hot to very cold, which makes it a more challenging engine actually to manage emissions from uh, than a normal one. So, you know, hybrid engines are neutral to us. Um, And if you talk a bit about that diesel emissions scandal, um, it has particularly impacted Europe. It, It is Europe where there is a significant passenger car diesel market. And actually, in a funny sort of way, has been a very good thing for us because as that scandal occurred, uh, it made the OEMs realize that actually air quality really mattered to the consumer and they moved rapidly to seek to find ways to improve air quality uh, of their vehicles. Previously, they'd managed air quality to the legislative levels but as consumers became more concerned, they realized that there was value to be created by actually going further than legislation. And what it, it created was a, a period in time when um, OEMs moved very rapidly to improve the quality of emissions control on cars, which, as I say, I think is a really good thing. Um, and actually, JM had the technology and the flexibility and agility to work with those OEMs to support them in that move um, as, as they looked to materially improve their emissions. And actually, you know, one of the things that's driving our performance in, in the near term is that we won 20 percentage points of market share of the diesel uh, car market, and that includes diesel passenger vehicles, which, you know, we would never... Without that discontinuity and without a move to cleaner air, that opportunity wouldn't have presented itself. That feeds into the original question I was talking about. I I, I guess when you're talking across those business groups, it does afford a certain degree of uh, flexibility. You've got diversification there. So if you do need to um, uh, allocate capital to a particular area, the other parts of uh, of, of the business can effectively hold up the group as a whole. Um, well, so all the businesses that we run should overall um, have a high return on invested capital because what we're doing is the really complicated piece um, with difficult chemistry to solve a customer's problem, which is why we, you know, we perpetually target that 20% return on invested capital. We have a very rigorous approach to capital allocation. 
uh, and the returns that we expect from that capital. And we will invest for different returns in different businesses. So if you talk about that clean air business, the share gains that we've made in diesel and also the upcoming legislative changes, both in Europe, but also there's some very significant legislative changes across Asia. In fact, China is going to be, by 2020, have emissions control standards that are as good as Europe or ahead of Europe, tighter than Europe. Yeah. Um, those changes do require us to add capacity. We've had to invest uh, capital to deliver against that opportunity. But in that business, I would be expecting the uh, return on that capital to be very high. Yeah, I think it's it's always an issue for uh, retail investors as well, which is our, obviously our target audience, is just how do they go about looking at, at, at the group and, and the time frame involved from original capital allocation through to returns. But uh, as you mentioned, this is something that you assiduously try and and drive uh, drive through throughout the course of the um, the investment cycle. Now, I, I guess while we're on the, 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 this subject as well, obviously with that transition going forward, you made the point that hybrid um, hybrid engines still require catalytic converters, and the UK government, so I believe, has taken a, a slightly more realistic uh, view of that than uh, our counterparts in Europe, because I think uh, by 2030 we'll, we'll see a lot more hybrid vehicles on the road perhaps less so in terms of pure ev but you're also you're also investing quite heavily um or trying to exploit the battery technology market yes we are and and we're doing that um because it plays to our science so if you look at an electric vehicle uh, it requires a battery and as yet we don't yet have uh, in the world batteries that are performing at the level the consumer wants to give the consumer the range, the power, the recycle time, and the cost such that this is you know, yet um, a technology that, that gets mass adoption. The bit of the battery that is the limiting bit of a battery, so the bit that can make the step change there, is the cathode. And uh, the cathode it's all about surface chemistry and materials chemistry, which plays right to JM's core skill set. So we've been working for some time on developing cathode material that um, helps solve that problem for OEMs, helps improve the performance of the overall battery at lower cost. And we're very excited um, about the material that we're developing that we call ELNO, or Enhanced Lithium Nickel Oxide. It's a next-generation material, so it's not designed to compete with the materials that are in the market today, so the electric vehicles that are in the market today, they have um, lower-grade material on. It's competing with materials that will come to market in the next few years that will all provide a step change in performance as to the materials that are out there now. Um, we've had some very good... Uh, feedback initially from customers. Um, that's both the cell manufacturer but also the OEMs. And we're now working through the validation process uh, of both cell manufacturers and the OEMs of our materials so that we will ultimately see it on platforms whilst at the same time investing, um, significantly investing actually, in building the capacity uh, to deliver against that opportunity. 
So th- this this might seem it's, it's an unfair question, really, but um, if you could, could you try and paint a picture of how you see the group will be servicing the automotive sector in, say, 10 or, or 20 years from now? Yeah, uh, but before I do, I'd, I'd step back one step, actually, and say we don't look at the world by sector. No. We look at the world through the lens of where our chemistry can deliver value. Uh, and the reason I, I say that is because if you look back over our 200 years, some of our biggest um, changes and, and innovation and value creation is, has come from that application of chemistry in places that sometimes isn't obvious given the existing business. And the reason that we are focused on battery materials is not because it's in the auto sector, but because it's right at the sweet spot of the chemistry that we're really good at, Okay. Um, nickel chemistry. And we've been very good at for many years. So how do I see the group evolving over the next 10 to 20 years? But, but who, who actually, um, this process to arrive at applied science, this is something that's always quite fascinating as well, because you have developed technologies in, in or chemical technologies in certain area. Where does, where does the commercial impulse come from? Is it just from the market itself or, or, or do you derive or, or do you infer exactly what's going to happen? Well, so we spend time understanding where the world is moving to. Yeah. So, for example, electric vehicles you know, or the, the move to greater electrification has been quite a big macro trend for some time. When we look at those trends, we look at where our chemistry plays. You know, we're very good at materials characterization. We're very good at um, surface chemistry, very good at metal chemistry and, and some other chemistries in that space. And we look at where they apply to some of those big, big trends. If you look at cathode materials, why is that really exciting for us? It's really exciting because it's a very difficult problem to solve. The power requirement and the range requirement of a, of a car is significant, um, far more significant than a, a computer battery, and we're not excited by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it relies on a deep understanding of metal chemistry and surface chemistry. And you know, one of the questions I get is, how have you developed a product that's as strong as, as, as yours is so quickly? And one of the reasons for that is we've been working in nickel chemistry and, and the specific behavior of nickel atoms since um, before the war. Okay. Um, you know, uh, in our uh, efficient natural resources business, because we use nickel as a catalyst in some of our catalysts for many chemical and other oil and gas processes. So that deep understanding of how to get nickel atoms to behave a certain way is what we've then been able to apply to the cathodes of cars. So what we do is we look at the macro trends, we look at our strengths, and we look at where we're going to be uniquely advantaged, and we invest in R&D in those spaces, and then we commercialize it. That's how we work. What does that mean that I think the group might look like in 10 to 20 years' time? I think we will see, in fact, I'm confident we will see uh, low to mid single-digit growth in our clean air business over the next 10 years driven by the legislative change and the ongoing need for the um, combustion engine, I think that we will see a significant growth in our battery materials business as we look to commercialize um, that product. Our efficient natural resources business should show steady growth because we have leading positions in 
in the catalysis of many of the processes that create the chemicals that you know consumers use all day every day um, and by its nature the end markets are are all growing albeit the, the chemicals market in the middle is a little bit cyclical so that business uh, should show steady and continued growth over that period but there'll be periods of stronger growth and, and, and weaker growth over a 20-year horizon I suspect and our health business would be very significantly bigger than it is today in that we've been investing there for some time now in growing our pipeline of, of pharmaceutical, active pharmaceutical ingredients. And because of the period of investment required uh, and the long route to market um, in that world, the fact that we've been investing for four or five years now means we've got quite a strong pipeline of generic active pharmaceutical ingredients and some innovator active pharmaceutical ingredients which will come to market over the next 10 years and make that business significantly bigger. And we've said that you know the pipeline that we have today, in profit terms, it should be delivering 100 million at the point that it comes to market over the next 10 years. Well, that, that's interesting. I should actually get uh, my colleague uh, Megan Boxer, who was away at the morning, that covers the pharma market for the IC, to have a, have a word with you about that at some point. I, I guess um, the, the last thing... Uh, we'd like to ask you about is that um, it's an obvious question really is that we're we're about to exit the EU possibly without a frictionless trade deal into the bargain how does uh, Johnson Matthew view the potential problem this entails because you're part of any well a number of uh, supply chains no doubt I mean and and plus there's uh, the, the, the question as well of access to uh, the right people uh, you've obviously would have given this some thought uh, how do you see it yeah, it's an area we've been working hard on for years now, actually. And we've been working hard on all scenarios because, as you say, it's very hard to know whether we'll find ourselves in a very hard Brexit or actually whether the outcome will be quite different. And as you can imagine, we've got significant mitigation plans for all of them. Uh, the nature of our business is it's quite global, um, and that gives us multiple ways in which we can mitigate any risk and in addition, as you can imagine, we've been working uh, with government and through trade bodies uh, so that there is a good understanding of the trade-offs and implications of, of, of different choices government may make as, as they negotiate that, that eventual deal. Uh, so I think we feel well-placed to navigate this irrespective of the outcome. Okay, well, listen, on that note, Anna, um, I think we'll, we'll call it quits. Thank you uh, very much for coming in and, and uh, speaking with us today. It's, it's rare that we get to speak to a representative of a company that's actually uh, older than the IC, but uh, hopefully uh, Johnson Matthew will be around in another 200 years. You certainly wouldn't uh, bet against it. But for now, Anna, thanks very much again. Thank you very much for having me.